And we are back. You are listening to the Once Upon a Stream podcast. I'm your host, Maddie Shook. I'm here with my co-host, Megan Mann. Hello. And we are talking about the Imagineering story. So this was one of the big titles on the first launch of Disney Plus that they really were hyping up and one of the ones I was truly most looking forward to. I watched it as far as day one, but when they released that weekly, like right at the bat, watched it straight away. Um, Because obviously, for as you can tell by previous episodes, we both love the Disney parks dearly. We really do. And so it's right up our alley. But let me just say, and we'll get into it, and there's going to be just a lot of feelings about these parks that we love so much and the attractions (sighs) and all of that. But essentially, so first is what the Imagineering story is. Um, This was created by Leslie Iwerks, who um, is basically second generation Imagineer and just has like family has a big legacy in the history of Disney. And this project had actually been in the works for a very long time that at first it was just going to be a single movie. But then once they like there was the rumblings of Disney's creating a streaming service, they decided it was actually better to kind of do it in like a limited series um, six episode documentary. Could you imagine, though, if it was just a movie? Because I feel like we would have missed so much so much because in this format because all the episodes are an hour if not a little longer all yeah. of them all six of them are an hour or just a, a little over an hour and that's like a legit number it's not like oh the credits are running and that's another like couple no 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 no, no. the episodes are a full hour long at least we would have missed out on so much if we just got like a two and a half two two and a half hour documentary Because it probably would have been just, like, pretty much the first two episodes kind of condensed and not getting into anything more recent than that. Yeah. But essentially with this, there's so many great interviews with um, even, like, archive stuff from first, like, the big first generation of Imagineers to kind of the second wave that really got got their big start in like the late 70s and then um really their heyday was in the 80s and 90s but and then to like current day of what's going on in the parks but even if you're not like that invested into theme parks and Disneyland and Disney World and all that jazz if you're someone who just likes kind of documentaries that just kind of give you that behind the scenes look and just a lot of great history and information and just look of how some of this magic is created this documentary is so well done so so well done that the footage like the archive footage that they were able to find and then like the new interviews that were made for this um because like a little spoiler we got like a new michael eisner interview which as anyone right. knows the history of Disney, that is huge. And so there's just, there's so much that I, I can't recommend this documentary highly enough, but we're going to kind of get into it. There's so much to cover, as we just Literally said. so much to cover. So this one is actually going to be a two-part episode. So we will actually have another episode later this week. And 
so the more the merrier to enjoy but today we're really going to be covering the first three episodes of the Imagineering story um, and so each episode really kind of consists of a like an entire era essentially yeah. Um, yeah. is kind of how they they split it up and so the these three especially are such like each one of them is truly like game changer and all of that oh yeah i mean the very first one is the creation of disneyland yeah so episode one just let's get into it that this is about like a lot of the familiar stories that you have if you're you are into theme parks and all of that of like kind of the folksy myth of like that uncle walt of the (laughs) i i was watching my girls on the carousel and like just wasn't participating wanted something where families could all enjoy together and that that's been in a billion books and other documentaries and things but there were still a lot of great new insights in this first episode but disneyland the park that started it all all of it started it all what's kind of your lincoln background with it or so I actually did not go to Disneyland until I was a senior in high school because I, my family has always been Disney World. Disney World, Disney World, Disney World. I don't even remember like my first three trips to Disney World because I was so young, but I went when I was a senior in high school and I, I was excited because I was like, okay, this is where everything actually started. This is it. I wouldn't have Disney World if I didn't have Di- if Disneyland didn't exist. So I was really excited, but I was slightly let down because I'm used to Disney World. So when I got to Disneyland, I was like, "Mom, why is it so small?" Because I was an annoying 18 year old. I was like, "Mom, this place is so small." She's it like, hurts my heart. <laughs> I know, but I was like, "Mom, this place is so small." Where because. Like, Okay, hot takes here. <laughs> Disneyland is objectively better than the Magic Kingdom. That is facts. The the just the California versus Florida debate. There are valid points on both sides, but if you're just doing park to park, land is better. <laughs> uh, yeah, I feel like. See, here's the thing. Like we did Disneyland in like half a day, and I was like, "Well, where's the rest?" And my mom's like, "No, that is the rest." And I was like. You mean I don't have to walk around for like 12 straight hours? I'm not mad. Because it's all condensed and then... It's condensed. Like, they they use every square inch of space uh, as far as... possible And inch. it's just themed to the nine. So you don't just have like these random corners where there isn't anything. And because I feel also too Magic Kingdom, because it is so expansive and all of that that there are spots that like they aren't as like maintained and updated and as far as like regularly get like fresh paint jobs and all of that that at this point in the game are a little bit like show their age even a bit more than like the older park because with Disneyland everything is so like put together in that space where if it's going to be taking up space it needs to be like looking great and properly like functional and all of that oh yeah because if you're in Disney World, if a ride goes down, you're like, well, I have so many other options. In Disneyland, you're like, I don't have as many. 
Well, the when you look at it side by side, the like the numbers to attractions between those two parks actually isn't all that different. It's just how really? much they're spread out. Yeah. That's probably what it is because by the time you walk to a ride at Disney World or like the Magic Kingdom, you're like, oh, the line's not so bad. Okay. But getting into it, so that's kind of your ties with it. As yes. you can see, I came in hard on that one. But Disney you're La- also, you have a different Disneyland, feeling towards Disneyland it. is my home park. Right. And so it's where I get that childhood nostalgia and all of that. So my, so I grew up in the San Francisco Bay Area and my grandparents lived in Huntington Beach, which is in Southern California, I'd say about like, 30 to 45 minutes away from Disneyland because most of the time you have traffic. And so basically it was when, when you would visit my grandparents, you go to Disneyland. Cause also back then tickets were super cheap too. So, right. Cause that's when like an adult ticket was $50. Yeah. Oh, Oh, you... the days. Oh, the day. <laughs> that just, that just took a second to like hurt me of just thinking how much I spent on my last Disney trip. But oh my god, seriously. oh uh, adulthood. Okay, but <laughs> so I have all these childhood ties with it, and like I still love Disney World. That I've been about like seven times or so now across my life, and I also just straight up front, I understand that frequently getting to go to the parks is a huge point of privilege and so it's something I don't take for granted correct because it is a big undertaking and like even back then of that it's still like a big deal for so many people of getting to go but also Disneyland I lived in Southern California for about six years and for the vast majority of those I did have an annual pass so yeah that's where I would just go literally all the time where when I lived in SoCal I really didn't have as much of like a social life and friends to like go out and do things but so my entertainment was going to Disneyland of just if I wasn't working you go to Disneyland even when it was like so crowded that you can't go on rides and stuff because all the lines are super long you're like okay I'll just like get fried chicken and watch world of color and then leave but that's kind of so that's the sitch of that I I know every every nook and cranny of it like the back of my hand it's my happy place it's my home and so getting to just see like the behind the scenes of just the first start of it of how how much it's grown and changed over the decades and just in the very beginning when this was just such a brand new concept that just didn't exist before that fateful day back in 50 it's 55 i believe yes mm-hmm. opening day yeah july 17th 1955 and so that's where how much progress to use a term frequently used when describing the parks has happened since then and so they do kind of get into the history of like Disney kind of coming up with the concept and like trying to get the support for it but then that's where because this was a brand new thing of kind of creating wet in enterprises and so um he kind of gets people from the animation department and different art departments for movies and that kind of thing of that they're creative showbiz minded people so that's where now you think it's like 
it's all just super technical of engineers and blah 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 and all these but that it came right off the bat of he knew the creative side is so much harder to teach than just like the technical right and so it was about creating story and that's where you get people like John Hench who created these like brilliant backgrounds on these animated films and so like that background artwork kind of creating that in a 3D environment where it does kind of feel like you are you're stepping outside of reality for a little bit because it's just everywhere you look it is like a beautiful perfect picturesque background that isn't like normal life right I enjoyed the fact because it's so easy for us to um associate you know the parks with always existing I guess yeah and so it's um it's a little weird to um see it as dirt <laughs> Like to see it as dirt or just literally him. orange groves, and like for him to say, "Hey, by the way, we need five million dollars to make this place," and then in the end, he spent seventeen million dollars on that place. Like, yeah, it's, it's, yeah, it's not ideal. <laughs> it's not, but it's so weird to see it, and it'd be like a legitimate gamble. It was. It was a gamble. There wasn't anything like it anywhere. Like, there was nothing like it at all. And for it to be, like, this thing where he was trying to find funding for it and struggling Mm -hmm. and wondering... Well, also, I just looked up as far as with the inflation calculator... Oh God. Uh, from don't, 1955 don't to that. 2020. So 17 million is about like okay. 165 million now. Jesus. Okay. Well, that's a lot of money. <laughs> yes, it is. So he went a wee bit over budget. But what's also really brilliant budget. about it is the ways that Walt got around it to like make the dream happen and everything because then for Disneyland the way they kind of got the extra budget is that he created the TV specials and so these new networks television just became a thing and they're like we need programming but he's like hey I'm Walt Disney I've made all these films that everyone loves and so they're like yeah TV every Sunday night so then they're like, yeah, totally, the, everyone will tune into that, so make your show. And he's like, okay, this is basically just going to be an infomercial for Disneyland. So it got the entire country like in on the idea and just promoting it to get everyone excited for the concept. So it's basically marketing that then the TV companies helped invest in Disneyland by him then doing the show for them to kind of help the network really kind of come to prominence. Right. And then on top of that, it was also like he basically said, hey, friends, we need your help. We need your help to get money to make this dream a reality, because if we don't have the money, we can't bring it to you. And don't you want to see this great thing? Exactly. It's so brilliant. And then the 
what I love in this kind of goes through in so many of the episodes is just with all of these like big parks and everything that's so much work and ever planning and all that went into it. But opening day is always just a hot mess. <laughs> and so they procrastinated so much that like literally because they were all dressed to the nines when they went to Disney World oh back then. Oh my god. They were. They were in their nice dresses. They had on nice hats. I and love- so, like, their heels are sinking into the asphalt because... <laughs> the biggest theme we are going to discuss is asphalt not being <laughs> done throughout this whole thing. That's all you're going to hear us repeatedly state. And then the asphalt still wasn't dry on opening day because that's been every single park. Every yeah. single park. And Disneyland just, you know, set that precedent. They were like, you know what? Our, it's so Or at least down. the first three that it they kind of picked it up by then. But Yeah, but it's so... It's, it's such a great illustration of, like, procrastination that it makes you feel better. That, like, even Disneyland, it's, like, literally just slipping in right on that deadline. <laughs> the next time you're stressed about deadlines... <laughs> Right? Think about it's Disneyland. Like, listen, Disneyland basically, basically, uh, yeah. Yeah, and then of just like, minute. then he got flat because people were thinking that because there weren't drinking fountains everywhere that Disney was just trying to nickel and dime people to like make them buy soda and all that. Yeah. And he's like, well, we had a budget where we either had money for drinking fountains or toilets. Yeah, on toilets, you just want a drinking fountain. So buy a dang Coke. Yeah, sorry that I gave you a toilet. I'm so sorry that you have to drink a Coke for that. Like, sue me in the end. Oh my god. So that's where their budget was so stretched where they're like, okay, either people get water or they have a place to go to the bathroom. Well, I think we need a bathroom, so that is what it is. (laughs) But, I mean, they explain that, you know, this was a huge gamble. It was a huge gamble to even consider a park, not just like this, but on its scale. And then, you know. And the last little bit of just, like, the opening day madness of, once again, just taking for granted that, like, these parks didn't always exist. And just the social norms that happen didn't always exist. Is then, like... one of the little like car rides and stuff people just like jump the barrier jump the barrier went on the track like pulled people out of their cars and like commandeered the cars and stuff Which and it's like no so weird. you you wait in line like like i don't know i don't know that it's necessarily social norms but it's like that was just common decency what are you doing are you a pirate do you just get to come in and commandeer everything? I don't think that's that, how it That works. first day was just literally anarchy. It was literal anarchy. Everyone's like, all right, my shoes are sinking into the ground. I don't know what's happening. I have to drink oh, Coke because there's And the no Mark River boat was like sinking a little bit. <laughs> it was such a mess. But within those first few months, it was uh, how many months did they say it took? Like five or six months to get to a million? Yeah, so it was just like a, a just a few months that they were like already there. Yeah, it, it was like three to five months, something crazy like that. Yeah, and then right after that, all these amusement parks started popping up, and they all had similar vibes to Disneyland because everyone wanted to recreate 
what, what Disney did done. of just that, like, the hub and spoke model, just it just works. <laughs> it really does when you think about it because you don't think about that at all, really. And then you see it on paper and you're like, oh, it yeah. just has a sense of flow because you know where you know where you are in the park. If you could see, like, if you could see the castle, you know. Yeah. That's the center of the park. Oh, as long as I because the like castle. I remember last year, um, coworkers talked me into going into the Six Flags Park that's here, and it didn't have like the hub and spoke model, and it's just like, where are things laid out? This doesn't make sense, and it just put me on like so off guard because I'm just I'm so used to my Disney standards, and you're serious, but like Six Flags is just madness. Of just... I mean, it's madness everywhere. It's madness here too. If it makes you feel better. Yeah. It's fine. <laughs> it's fine. It's totally fine. But he, it, the attractions that started there are almost all still there. You got yeah, your Yeah, they're iconic. Though, which is my, one of my, there are rides, and I'm going to say this periodically throughout both episodes because it's true. There are rides that if you're a Disney Park fan, if you don't ride it, you really just you feel like you didn't have the full experience. And I maintain that no one, unless you get motion sickness, which why are you on that ride to begin with, that no one is as happy as they are on the teacups. You just, you're spinning and you're laughing and you're having so much fun and you're just like, I just have so many awesome memories on the teacups. So many awesome memories. And it's, it's one of my rides. I have to ride the teacups or I don't. Feel and like see, I, I, I like in Disneyland that the teacups that open. they're they're open air. So because my so favorite much. is to do it during fireworks. <gasps> that would be amazing. It's pretty awesome. Oh my god! Now I have to go and do, do just that. There we go. Just Pro tip. That. Oh my god! That sounds amazing. It's a it, it's great, but. Then as far as, so you kind of have like your first string of opening day attractions and a lot of those, they, they've been tweaked and stuff, but that, there's a lot the of mainstays that are still there. Teacups, the which, Jungle Cruise, Jungle Cruise, um, which those cars, it's basically like the, um, the racing cars that have horrible fumes flying off of them. You can smell them yeah. a mile away. Um, like the Autotopia setup, yeah. Yeah, and then um, in Disneyland, we don't have it in Disney World because we're smart. Mr. Toad's Wild Ride. And then another one that is like my whole heart in one, which I know you have a different feeling, a much, much different feeling towards, is Peter Pan. I love Peter Pan. I love like the Fantasyland Dark Rides are just, it, it's a special kind of magic. But It is. How do you not feel so magical in a flying pirate ship over a twinkling London? Like, come on. It's great. And then, then the kind of the next string of rides to come about really was spurred on with the 1964 World Fair. And once again, another way of Walt kind of using his circumstances to kind of help him in the parks and all of that of just like, you know, so they want me to make these stuff for the World's Fair, but I also want like new rides for the parks. So basically it's letting other companies just kind of foot the bill. Okay, I'll create these ride technologies and stuff and then we'll we'll just move them into the park when we're finished. And that's one of the most fascinating things about 
episode one. Yes, there's all that Disneyland stuff, but once Disneyland became successful, he then started getting approached by other companies and they're like, how do we do what you're doing? Help us with your technology to help our technology. And that is the best part is that he's like, well, I didn't really see this happening, but all right, let's get, let's get this go. And if you're going to help me pay for things that I want done, let's do it. Yeah. And so that's how you get small world because Pepsi paid for it. And And what would Disney World, Disneyland be without Small World? That song, you can, it's synonymous with Disney. Small World, Disney. And getting into it, one of the things that's so great with the Imagineering story, too, is that it really highlights these voices that some of them of like, if you're into theme parks and all of that, you kind of know the names, but letting other people know about people like Mary Blair, who that she just had such a brilliant vision and just her level of artistry is incredible. And so she originally did concept art for stuff like um, Cinderella that Mm -hmm. her snow white watercolors are gorgeous Alice in Wonderland and other stuff but then is widely known of kind of creating the art design for Small World and that as far as like the iconic front facing um as far as like the white building in Disneyland that because it's different of how it is in Magic Kingdom Um, yes it looks completely different like you have that because they they have it all inside to due to weather constraints and all of yeah, that. Yeah, and Disneyland has that beautiful facade. It, it's, the facade is stunning, and then, like, the art style of the kids and everything, and just the colors that are used, and it's just so bright and fun and joyful and just filled with so much life, and then you tie that in with, as far as the Sherman Brothers and their music is oh. just iconic, and... Oh, that's the first time I cried in this, when, uh... When the Sherman brother popped up, and I was like, "Whoa, you did Mary Poppins! Oh my God, you did Mary Richard Poppins!" Richard Sherman's just great. He's and such a cute old man. You just want to hold his hand, drink tea with him, have a good time. And that he wrote a song that is stuck in everyone's head for, for forever, for until the sun explodes. And Literally. so that it, it's just iconic. And then, like other names, as far as it's just it's so cool that more people get to know about these people's stories because without them but we, you between both have the parks and the films and all that so much gets, just gets tied to Walt and he is incredible of just like such a revolutionary mind and all of that but that it wouldn't have happened without the people that he chose to make these projects happen and he knew that and where what what and so that's where it's going to bring up as far as like getting to highlight Bob Gurr and oh, that him too. who's just precious he's and he's just man. so great and so like he kind of started things off of that he had designed some of the like because he was a car guy and so he had designed oh, yeah. some of the vehicles for like the Autotopia attraction and then for World's Fair that he kind of worked on the monorail of getting like that design put together and then and most importantly and then years later, like, people were talking of, oh, we need, like, a thrill attraction. He's like, and Walt's like, 
you know, here's your thrill attraction. We're going to build a, a like replica of the Matterhorn, <laughs> the mountain in the Swiss Alps, and you're going to put a roller coaster in the middle of it. And not only are you going to build a roller coaster, but it's going to be with bobsleds. And it's going to be bobsleds, and the Skyway is going to cut through it, so you need to make room for that. So figure it out. You figure Just it out. Like, you have a good time, and I'm going to stand back and watch it. Just drop this idea, and then I'm like, okay. So, because it's crazy because Bob Gurr was saying of just, like, I hadn't done, like, because he had barely, like, graduated from high school as far as that he hadn't done any kind of, like, trigonometry or geometry and that kind of stuff of, like, the physics that are required. So, of just, I, I know machines, but I've never done a roller coaster before, but he just kind of just figured it out yeah and it's so it's so jarring to watch them build it because you're watching them run the roller coaster just on the track there's nothing around it you're seeing everything and they do it again when they because that's getting to see the archive footage that that they brought out for this is so cool to see because so well documented everything like because as we all know, majorly Disney obsessive and stuff. And there was footage I had literally never seen before in all of the like plethora of like documentaries and YouTube stuff and like books and pictures and things that I had researched and looked up over time. So these were brand new images of getting to see, which was just so cool. And then to bring it all full circle. And so um, a lot of this stuff was filmed um, fairly recently of just within the past, like between like 2017, 2018 kind of time frame for a lot of this stuff. And so it was around then that they actually did bring Bob Gurr back in just into Disneyland to kind of give, like he kind of toured the Matterhorn and kind of got you to see inside. And oh my so, God. you know, that there's the urban so legend. So emotional. Oh, I, I wept. Yes. Because he's sitting there and he's like, they're like, because he's talking about all the cast members, how they signed the wall and whatever. And he's, they asked him, well, did you sign the wall? And he's like, no. Well, why not? Well, I've never been a cast member. Yes, but, sir, you designed the ride. Oh, well, I guess you have a point. Like, what? And so he gets to sign the wall. <laughs> he's just like, oh, that's true. You know what? I did let's design do- this ride. <laughs> so let's do it. And then that... So it's just the crazy thing with this of the imagineering story and it being on such a big platform like disney plus and hopefully more and more people get to watch this oh yeah but just the fact of like my dad now knows who bob gurr is like (laughs) (laughs) when you bring it like that of just people who really don't care that I, I forced my family to watch this and they indulged me but that like they got sucked in too because it's just so fascinating to watch of just how this all came together and just the little anecdotes and stuff that are in each episode really I mean if you like and it's a theme literally throughout all six episodes is that the person at the helm I mean with like you know one exception has basically been like Okay, so how are you going to make that? I believe in you, but how are you going to actually do it? Because if you can pull this off, that will be an incredible experience for people. And that's what Walt did. He was like, 
I'm not so good at the creating. I other th- like he'll come up with an idea, right? And he'll say, mm-hmm. "How do we implement this?" And that's PC how, idea guy, right? And so that's basically though. This is to be the CEO or president of Disney, especially in terms of the parks. It ha- you have to be so creative minded and think. How are we going to make this better? How are we going to improve this? How are we going to continue to have attractions or an experience that people are going to be thinking about long after they've done it and want to go back? So I think Walt set a really good precedent because then you see it in the second episode with Roy as well. And then you see it with, you know, Michael Eisner and you see it with Bob Iger. And they're all of the same mind where they're like, it has to be amazing because if it's not we know people aren't coming back so they've always pushed everyone to be as creative as possible to create something incredible yes and and i feel like they've been given such free reign you know what i mean and especially that first generation of just that especially them had to figure it out but then it's interesting of just that you got more voices in it and like that it made things for the better because then you bring in like the icon that is Mark Davis and he's so he was one of like the nine old men of just part of the animators of those classic films but he's like this is really cool Disneyland's great but I've gone on all these attractions and not one of them has made me laugh yet right and so that's when he he updated the Jungle Cruise, and then he oversaw attractions like Pirates of the Caribbean and Haunted Mansion and stuff like that, where it's like, there needs to be fun. Yeah, you need to have, yes, you want to, you know, ride a ride, but you want to have fun. Because there is, like, the magic of the fairy tales and the adventure and the frontier and, like, the future stuff, but, like, there needs to be humor, too. Because that's part of like oh absolutely of the magic. So you have some attractions that are those like big serious experiences, and then some that are just like you you laugh and just kind of just are lighter by experiencing it. Oh, but absolutely. It was like such a gr- cool group of like people that first came together in that first generation of it, and, and they, they have cemented themselves as. Legends and icons and absolutely, because this truly is like after you finish the series, you have to admit that like the theme parks are an art form unto themselves, and so and these are the people who really kind of pioneered and created the standards for that art form, who really elevated like the, like creating themed entertainment as a thing. But, like, this is kind of the first, like, just as things were kind of getting solid and all of that, um, really the end of this era is kind of capped by Walt's death and just of how sudden it was and that it it did kind of, like, was just a literal shock to everyone of when it happened. Because then... Like, as we all know, so Walt had lung cancer, and so that was around 1965 when that happened. 
So Disneyland has been successful for 10 years now, and there's like the rumblings of the Florida project and all of that, but then one day he's just sick, and that is in the hospital for a few days that like even most people know about, and one day he's just gone. And so, Megan, are you still with us? Megan, you there? Okay, some technical stuff, so I'll vamp. But essentially, that, what I thought was really interesting of just the serendipity of it all, so Tony Baxter will get to when we talk about episode three, that, um, essentially he was actually there at Disneyland the day after Walt's death was announced and just that it was just such a like somber experience just hanging over everyone and so but what's interesting each of these episodes really does kind of end on a cliffhanger and so that first cliffhanger is just like where do we go from here because it was such a pioneer new thing that like Walt really was spearheading. So now that we kind of like without that main leader who kind of set us out on these different quests to create these great things, what do we do now? And so that'll take us into episode two. So there were some technical difficulties, but we are back. So Megan's back with us because she dropped out for a little bit there. I didn't mean to. She was a ghost for a little bit. I was. I was. But we're back now. So, yeah, like we were saying, um, Walt dying just on the cusp of the breaking of Disney World and, like, creating everything that they had to create for that. And not being able to oversee that, oh, that makes me so sad. But they did that, they had him say that quote about how we keep moving forward. And that quote always gets me. Like, always, it makes me so annoyed that it's at the end of Meet the Robinsons because it makes me cry every time. Like, I'll get through the whole movie. And then that quote comes up and I'm like, wow, I'm a wreck. So, um, there was a very emotional thing to watch, especially for anyone who loves Disney. But... That took us into, like you were saying, ends on a cliffhanger. So you're like, well, what do they do now? Because that's what they say. They're like, with Walt gone, it's like, well, where do we go from here? And that's where we go into into the second episode. And first and foremost in the second episode, the first thing they talk about is another iconic staple, which is the the Haunted haunted mansion. Mansion. How do you... And that's going back to what you were saying. How do we make it fun, but also kind of thrilling? So it's very interesting that essentially Haunted Mansion was designed by two individuals. So Mark Davis and Claude Coates. And so Claude Coates wanted to lean much more into like the true creepiness of it all. Mm -hmm. But then... Mark Davis wanted more of like the fun and the whimsy, like where it can be kind of scary, but a little like funny and enjoy, like lighthearted too. And right. so they apparently, they work, like the work they create together is phenomenal, but their actual like working dynamic relationship together does not, not exist existent. 
Like, yeah. basically. And, again, Bob Gurr created the carts for that. He did all of the, the ride vehicles. Yeah. Which is great. And I love it. And then that's one of those ones that it's it's brought to the modern day in the sense that it's been updated with all the new technologies, but it's still the exact same as it was. And that's the best part. That's the best part. And what's really great is the woman who they had um, do the Madame Leota, um, the, when you're going through and you start the ride and you see the woman in the crystal ball and that's Madame Leota, her... Uh, she's actually one of the Imagineers. Yeah, she's one of the Imagineers. And then, not only that, when they went to redo it, they used her daughter, who was also an Imagineer, which that's what something, was it this episode or an episode three? This episode, yeah. Oh, it's this episode where they're like, these kids were hanging around because their parents were all Imagineers. So they were like, so you guys in on this or like what's happening? Because we need another batch of Imagineers and like, you've already been here. And so they're like, (laughs) essentially, (laughs) right? And so they basically got in right at the ground floor when they were designing for Epcot. And so they have basically the first generation passing down their skills of like the people who created Disneyland really kind of mentoring basically the new class of like these youngins that of just how to kind of balance the creativity and just the practical side of just making these things a reality but in something brand new because once Walt died of just there were a lot of big grand plans for the Florida project and Walt was kind of thinking like this utopian city and they're like well how do we make that happen yeah we make that happen happen. and they're (laughs) like well no so Roy's like let's let's just build a magic kingdom right off the bat just right off the bat let's do it let's we'll have something so that'll work and so that's but, where the- but one of the things that's amazing before we even go past it is that they realized so it's just big swamp land just yeah. lots and lots of swamp land they brought what was it like 27,000 acres or something like that so it's 40 square miles just for perspective yeah and so they have swamp land and they're thinking how are we going to provide electricity how are we going to do like all of these things and what disney did was like well forget it we're just going to become our own town we're going to become our own town. We're going to become our own electric company. We're going to become our own telephone company. We're going to become our own sanitation company. And then they just did it. They just Which did it. Which is kind of insane. But they it's just did so it. insane. <laughs> it's like, I mean, for lack of a better comparison, it's like the Vatican. <laughs> The Vatican's, in, the Vatican's in Rome. You know it's in Rome, but it's technically its own city. Just like Disney World is in Orlando, but it's technically its, it's Lake own Lake Vista. Yeah, <laughs> it's, it's Lake Buena Vista. And that's what's so crazy. And then you see all of the steps they took to become sustainable. And this is in the 70s. This is in the 70s before it's something that they do 
now. Now it's let's find ways to use solar energy. Let's use ways to like hydraulic power and stuff like so yeah. using water in, in that aspect and like the conservation efforts to try to minimize like how much they were polluting the swamp lands and all of that. Yeah. And that's fantastic. And it's like, and because they have so much land and everything, that's how like they created like the Utilidor system. And because that's like the underground tunnels that are beneath the Magic Kingdom for the cast members and everything. Because one of the things Walt always hated was in just in Disneyland, all all the workers and everything. stuff have to walk like into the park into like between the different lands and everything. So you see someone in like Jungle Cruise get up walking down Main Street and it takes disarming. away from the theming, if you will. Yeah. And so they now have an underground tunnel system. So what did they say they did? They like ro- raised the ground level. Is that what they said? Yeah. That's yeah. That's what I thought. They raised the ground level. Which is crazy. <laughs> Which is crazy. <laughs> it's so crazy to think about that. To then have this huge network of tunnels. Yeah. Which is so, which is just so crazy. It's literally the craziest thing ever. And so we we see groundbreaking on Disney World. We see um, all of the work they did on Magic Kingdom. Now, before we move to Epcot, because we can't move to Epcot yet, they said, we want a thrill ride. We're not going to do the Matterhorn. What are we going to do? Because at this point, like, if you think about it, so Disney parks have been around since 1955, so it's almost almost 20 years since that point of just they need to make these cool again. And so the new generation, there's not a lot of like thrilling attractions that they're all that impressed with. Because by now there's like, there there is stuff like Six Flags and things across mm-hmm. the country where there are these big thrilling roller coasters. So this was their answer to it. Space Mountain. Where they bring the thrills, but they still make it, like, themed fantastically. I I love just the design of the building. It's just so perfect. It is. It really is. And it's, again, very jarring to watch Space Mountain as it's being built and as they're testing the tracks without that building around it. Yeah. It's so weird. And then I, I love... I can't remember who said it, but they mentioned how that was like the beginning of making your wait time interactive because, or to set like a tone or a vibe because you, when you're going through the line of Space Mountain, you know, you're- You have the tunnels and stuff. Yeah. And like the little screens to make you feel like you're- In space. On this, like, spaceship scenario. Yeah, and they've got, like, the astronauts in the air, and they've got, like, the rockets. And so it's, like, that was a big part of what they wanted to do was create an ex- an entire experience. It's not just the ride itself. It's the waiting in line that's part of it, too. And, of course, you know, that's translated to today where you have things like... You and know, we'll kind of get into that in episode three as well with Indiana Jones. but Right. And even, but you see it now with like, even something as small as the laugh floor, 
you're still hearing jokes the whole time you're waiting to get into the theater. That's not even a ride. But, like, having, like, a themed queue and a pre-show and that kind of stuff yeah. is all part of the experience. Right, and that's part of why people keep coming back is because you know you're not just waiting in a line like at Six Flags. You're waiting in an experience line. Yeah. And that's what's fantastic. So that was great. And, and once again, the asphalt, we are procrastinating. They literally, for Magic Kingdom, <laughs> they had have helicopters. helicopters fly over Fantasyland to make sure that the asphalt was dry by then. God. they It's really tragic how often they mention that this is an issue. Of just literally the morning before that it's like five morning in the morning. Of. Yeah. So like the morning of. So like park opens at like eight AM or something. And so they have like helicopters at like six in the morning just like just hovering. <laughs> and again, what was crazy about the opening of Disneyland, so they open, right, in nineteen seventy one. Yes, 71. Yeah, Magic Kingdom 71. So yeah. they opened in 1971, and there are, what is it, like, not that many people that show up, and they're waiting for this big, massive crowd, and they're like, what is happening? But then they find out people weren't coming because they were scared there were going to be too many people because the di- opening of Disneyland was so huge. So they thought, "Oh my god, this isn't going to be successful because there's no one here." Come to find out, people were scared to go because they wanted to have a good experience, but were worried that there were going to be too many people there. Yeah, it's it's very much it's funny how these things parallel and sometimes history repeats itself cuz when everyone was talking about how like galaxy's edge this summer was a disappointing opening and all of that it's because they they ramped it up so much that Mm -hmm. like so many people are going to be here and cast members are going to be blocked out during these dates and yada 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 and so like everyone was scared off of going so everyone was like well we'll wait a few months as far as hold off and not immediately go during the summer and everyone's like it failed it failed as a lamb and i know just chill like, and it evens out, because once people are like, oh, okay, like, it's not complete anarchy insanity, no. I'll, I'll go ahead and check it out, and now it's, like, iconic. Exactly. And then, what happens halfway through the episode? We lose Roy Disney. And it's... Because this is so, for distinction, so Roy O. Disney is Walt's brother. Yes. And then Roy E. Disney is... Is his nephew. Is Roy's son. So... That way, as far as, and Roy E. Disney kind of is like a power player in Disney in the 90s. Yes. So I knew like more of him than originally of like Roy's brother. Because up until this point, before Walt's death, he was just the money guy. That's just, it. He just somehow had to make Walt's like, dream his, a reality. His brother cr- crazy dreams and everything happen and like keep calm heads and all of that. And make sure that they didn't go under because they, that happened like nearly like five times. Right. And so, but they said that. They said he was there to make Walt's dream a reality. And when he dies and they show that clip of Roy talking, I don't know, I don't know where it was, but it had to have been at some sort of either like shareholders meeting or something or other because it was a Disney like faculty thing. And he said, those five years, 
were the happiest years of my dad's life when he's like creating Disneyland and overseeing the construction and all the stuff. And when he said that, oh my God, I wept so hard because he's like, no, like because he got to have fun. Yeah, and these last those last five years of his life where he was creating Disney World were the happiest of his life because they said but in the documentary that he was he felt, so stressed out by it that like he passed away like three months after the park opened and but that's what they said they felt that Roy was put like, so much pressure on himself of I have to make this happen for Walt and if I it has to be successful so they felt like he was like okay I can go knowing I made this happen I did right by my brother and I'm like oh my god I can't watch this it was so sad, but once Walt, or well, not Walt, once Roy passed, again, they had that wave of, no, now we're really, really, we're really lost. We have no... Because this is the Disney company, and now we don't have a Disney. And we're freaking out. We have no forward direction. So everyone just kind of was like, looking at each other like, well, where do we go from here? Where do you go from here? You make Epcot. Yeah. So they're like, so we can't make like the whole utopian future city thing happen. Absolutely not. But they kind of pull a little bit. So half of it is inspired from that of just like this look to the future and progress and technology and sustainability and all of that of kind of creating this educational side. And that's more what future world is, the front half. And then they're like, well the world's fair is so influential in their story too that that's how they kind of create the world showcase on the back half of the park but that is sort of look and they say they mention it that it is looking towards the future a future where we can all come together no matter where we come from and i think i understand where walt was going with the original idea for epcot but I think the iteration we have now and that we've come to all know and love, it's like, it's so impactful. And it really is because it is like, okay, like imagine if we didn't have this kind of thing. We would never, some people wouldn't have access to that kind of culture because if you work at Epcot in one of the countries, you have to be from that country. You can't be like an American working in Japan. Yeah. You have to be and from Japan. The funniest thing, too, of if you are like a Disney Parks person, is then when you get in the stage of life that you do kind of tr- like once you do start like traveling to different parts of the world, yeah. there still is a little voice of you that you're like, it's like Epcot. <laughs> yeah. Like, I remember I was literally the a couple years ago on my first trip to Europe that I was in this little village in Germany with like the half timber houses and stuff and I'm like it looks like Epcot like it's the pavilion and then and that's something that we need to even mention like again Mary Blair she did the whole outer facade of the Mexico pavilion like the detail that goes into everything you see at Disney like when they were creating the costumes for It's a Small World, the costume designer went up to Walt and was like, okay, what's my budget? He's like, no, no, no. No, no, no. 
I want you to make authentic costumes from those countries, and I don't care about a budget. And that's kind of just what's, like, carried them through, is you want it to be as authentic as possible and make it as detailed as possible. It's the real... To make it real. Yeah, because, you know, maybe someone is never going to be able to go to Japan. So maybe Epcot's all they have, and that's okay, you know? So, I just, uh, I think all of the detail that goes into Epcot is incredible. It is. And it, it is about innovation, though, at the same time, because you do have something like Test Track. You have something like another ride that we're going to bring up in one of the later episodes. That is one of the best roads ever. You have the land that talks about all the sustainability and the creation and the, just the continuation of you know, crops and how are we going to make this world a better place? And you have all of these things. And back in the day, they don't really touch on this in the documentary, but like the Imagination Pavilion where the original iteration of Journey into Imagination, which is now an abomination shell of its former self ever since the Kodak sponsorship went away in 1999, unfortunately. So like, that's one of the biggest regrets as I've gotten like way more into theme parks and looking into theme park history and stuff is that I don't have like those childhood memories of being in the Imagination Pavilion because I was too young by the time it closed down to like really even remember the original version. Yeah. But Figment is still like an iconic part of Epcot. Absolutely. There's still like the cult following and things. So still fingers crossed of... So there's a lot of controversy from like the past D23 of how Epcot is changing, that there's a lot more IP that's being introduced and stuff like Guardians being put into um, like Future World and that kind of thing of just that it's taking away from like the original spirit. But, and there is part of that of, I would say really the like the first 10 years of Epcot, like Epcot in the 80s is kind of like the pinnacle. Yeah. In my opinion, but of like of the concept of being truest to like the original intention. But there is also just changing with the times and getting a new generation to like care about that kind of stuff. Right. So like if you want an attraction to be centered around like water conservation ship, yeah, you're going to involve Moana. Of course. Yeah. You got to know your audience. It's true. Because kids will ride anything that has Moana. It's just facts. Pretty much. Just like everyone rode... uh, Frozen Ever After. Yeah, everyone rode Frozen Ever After. Everyone rode um, the Nemo ride. That got introduced to the Seas Pavilion. Right. So it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter. As long as you frame it a certain way it's fine it's fine so fingers crossed until like seeing how it actually like comes out of what this new upcount's going to be like right because as of like the construction started a couple weeks ago so at the end of february was like spaceship earth getting shut down and also spaceship earth as an icon yeah that building i love it i know it's kind of like people joke and just call it the big golf ball but like it well 
It is. It's it's so cool of just like the geometric shapes and everything and how it captures the light because you can never take a bad photo of it. Oh no, not at all. Absolutely not. It because that is a thing. It's like this is the first non-castle park, and so that yeah, it's kind of. I like how Tony Baxter put it of Epcot or I think it's the first of talking like Magic Kingdom is making like the fantasy real. Yeah. Whereas Epcot is making the real fantastic. Yes. Exactly. Exactly. And I think that's what's so special about it is that you're not necessarily taken off into a fantasy. You're taken into something that's grounded in reality, but elevated. But elevated, exactly. Because, you know, like I said, there's an attraction that you and I both love dearly that we're going to talk about later because it opens at Disneyland first. And, I mean, just, it's, it's, it is fantastic. And you're just like, this is unbelievable. I can't believe this is real and that, like, we're riding it. You know what I mean? Totally. And I love that. But, you know, like I said, I think a lot, I think it's more as you get older, you start to appreciate Epcot a lot more for what it gives you. And it has, it's, you know, it's something that's totally evolved with time. Like we said, they've redone Norway to be frozen. It's essentially frozen land in there. There's nothing, there's Pretty no two much. ways about it because, you know, everyone wants to ride Frozen forever after. And then now you go into Mexico, you walk into the building and you see all of the stuff uh, that Coco has in it. You learn about the Day of the Dead, the ofrendas. You see all of this stuff that is set in a Disney story, but is educational. And you're like, wow, they really did that. I can stand behind that. And I love that. And I also loved learning that. So they had, as Epcot is being built, they have their A-team, essentially, as they said, on this. But at the same time, Disney's like, how do we expand even further? What are we going to do? We're going to go to Tokyo. We're going to create Disney Tokyo. Actually, what's interesting about that is they... Like, really, they weren't looking to expand that much. That they were actually more approached about it. of Just because they were so busy with Epcon and Magic Kingdom and everything. And just the transition. And so, like, they get approached of, we want to, like, the the Japanese is calling, we want to, like, a park in Tokyo. And they're like, okay. No, we, we got enough on our, like, plates and all that. Thank you. But then they're like... No, we, we like really want it. So then you're not hearing basically us. the finan- the financial guy is like, so what am I supposed to tell him? And so he's like, I'll make a crazy offer where I say, we'll do it if you pay for everything. <laughs> and then the Oriental Land Company's like, sure, sure. So yeah, then they're okay. like, oh, okay. Well, if you'll fit the bill, sure. Yeah. Game on. And then they, so they took the B team. I hope you can hear the air quotes on the B team because none of these people are B team. Like to be an Imagineer, I mean, there's no team really. There's not. So while they're creating Epcot, but they're part over. Of it, it is a, in a little sense of just that, like there's different points in the Imagineering history, 
of where there are people that just by sheer luck of starting their position in like that time frame then develops their career to do something truly great because like these people were like fresh out of college so they're like all like 21 and get assigned to this of like I get to work for Disney and I get to be on site in like Tokyo for a year like designing right okay so it is like a bunch of college kids of just getting sent abroad to work on this, which is which <laughs> cool. That would never like really happen now at all, not in the same way. And so they have simultaneously creating two major projects. They have Epcot being built and now they have Disneyland Tokyo. And it's like their Imagineers are stretched pretty thin. Because then, like, the Tokyo team, if they had, like, any questions, they would be, like, they would call one of their colleagues, and the other colleagues are like, I'm busy. Like, I'm so busy. Figure it out yourself. Seriously. So, I I love the the one behind-the-scenes clip where they're showing, like, footage of developing Epcot and all that, and this one guy's trying to do this, like, peppy fun video, and approaches Kim Irvine, and it's like... Hey Kim, are you working are, on are something? You, and are she's you busy? Like, and she's like, "Yes, yes, literally every day. Get away from me." <laughs> she's like, "I so have hard. stuff I need to do. So I don't have time for this fun <laughs> little video." <laughs> that was one of the fun. Cause you could just see on her face. She's like, "Oh my god, I have to be nice to this person. And I don't want to be nice to this person. Oh my god, oh my god, oh my god, oh my god, oh my god." <laughs> it was so funny. <laughs> I was dying. Oh my god. So you have Epcot being built at the same time as Tokyo, and it ends up being that, you know, it's it's located just outside of Tokyo, and it's the first time that Disney has expanded outside of the U.S., and it ends up being this thing that just succeeds. It's, it's I mean... It's something that they didn't anticipate, and I mean, if you ever, I mean, just looking at it is so incredible, because what they did was they took basically the Magic Kingdom and placed it, you know, over there, but it works so well because so many people can't come here that it's okay, right? But they... You know, they keep Adventureland, Fantasyland, and Tomorrowland, but they have Western Land. And then they have Critter County and Mickey's Toontown, which, you know, is, it's, I mean, we all have, Disneyland and Disney World has Adventureland, Fantasyland, and Tomorrowland, but we don't have Western Land. Um, And it ends up being that these, this ends up being a very successful venture for Disney, Disney, and because the culture was there for it and because yeah. like they had basically unlimited budget it was just incredibly well crafted too oh it's oh extremely and then of course because this is a disney park the benches were sinking into the asphalt on opening day because it was too hot outside it couldn't dry in enough time and they had to pull all the benches out on the first day naturally as one does <laughs> And it is actually 
just for reference, it is the most visited, uh, it's the third most visited Disney park around the world, behind Disney World and Disneyland. Because, like, also the, the culture and everything, it was just a natural fit of that they love the Disney brand and that that feeling of magic and all of that that just fit perfectly oh it fit completely perfectly and it's and it, it's nice because it is very close to the city it's a short train ride away and it's fantastic and then that epi- that's how and so basically we have two successful projects and they're finished and it's so, all good so now, really, but then they're like, where do we? They go basically from here? put everyone on pause because essentially, Imagineering a lot of times it's it's like contract work, where once the project is done, it's a question of are you still going to stay on? So all these people are like, do we still have jobs? And it was very much in question. And during that time of uncertainty, we're also getting CEO change, and so right. then we got these two bigwigs from Hollywood coming over Michael Eisner and Frank Wells and that's where episode three begins where some of the true nostalgia phase and we will get into that and so it's it, it episode three really is one of my favorite episodes in the oh, whole series so there's so much to get into it absolutely I mean it's got I mean <laughs> I keep saying this I do but I have to mention old because I still sometimes call it MGM so watching MGM, or as it's now called, Hollywood Studios, being created and all these rides that I loved when I was younger, ugh, knowing that was coming was really making me excited for episode three. So I think we should get into episode three now. And that we will. So as we said earlier, episode three basically begins of with the CEO transition of... Um, card walker and I- i'm blanking we're in the stage blaming everything on corona oh uh, yeah if you, if you forget something corona i can't but, I, I feel like they're just so kind of forgettable though yeah they're the transitional era and yeah. stuff of, but then we do step into it's eisner and wells time and it is for both of us in our age range we grew up in the this is the era of Disney that really is near and dear to our hearts. True. And that, like, not as much Frank Wells, and so we'll kind of get to him in a minute. But Michael Eisner in particular is just kind of this larger-than-life persona that he was the face of Disney. And so, you know, he was on all the TV specials of, Hello, I'm Michael Eisner. <laughs> and that, that was is... spot on. Spot on. Honestly, where he is slightly a meme at this point, especially in like the Disney fan communities and stuff, um, because those people that are on various social medias talking about Disney, it is kind of right in that zone. And there is like a cartoonish element of him of like, you, you get the voice and the big personality and the crazy quotes and just the dramatic ups and downs of like his tenure at Disney that it is kind of like this mythical history at this point but Mm -hmm. 
the highs were high though like especially of what's really kind of reached in this episode and when we do talk about the latter half of this docuseries next time around we will kind of get more into the lows of everything but this is where it's just the episode itself is called the Midas touch because in this time period everything works it's total overhaul of the company total overhaul total overhaul it's just it's all great and they even said in the second episode that card and whoever it was whatever whoever it was with him before eisner and wells they were very business-minded and not very creativity driven and eisner and wells were completely creativity driven they we're thinking, how do we make the experience better for people? How do we resurrect the animation department? How do we do this? How do we do that? How do we make Imagineering even better than it was before? They were very creativity-minded. In that, like, specifically in regards to Imagineering and all of that, they came from a showbiz background of that Eisner was an exec at Paramount and Wells was from Warner Brothers. And so they were like, we're gonna give that same approach part of it the creativity but just the razzle dazzle of it all that theme park attractions are putting on a show that it's essentially applying those same principles from movie making and so we know how to do that so we're gonna apply this to this completely new realm that we're not even that familiar with and the coolest thing ever so for imagineering story um there are actually interview footage with Michael Eisner, like new stuff that that was filmed within just the last two years. And when he came on screen and you saw that this wasn't just like archival footage, that this is new stuff, I lost my ever-loving mind. <laughs> like, my sister came in from the other room and is like, are you okay? Like, is, did something happen? Because I was just like, oh my gosh, oh my gosh, oh my gosh. And I was like, no, it's new Eisner footage. And then she just kind of rolled her eyes and left the room. But <laughs> for anyone who's familiar of his exit wasn't exactly on the best of terms, Mm-mm. that there has been a long process of kind of healing of, he's kind of come back to the fold of like, Disney is remembering him a bit more fondly and that like and I mean, when, he's once reached we... out and like he's tweeted recently of like complimenting some of the new attractions and like some of the new films and stuff and so it's and when just kind of when cool we discuss everything that he's done I mean how do you not look on him fondly you know what I'm saying yeah how do you not I mean oh I just well part of it is just I think that transition happened after Roy E. Disney died. Yes. And so sometimes once the parties involved aren't necessarily there, then we can start to heal and move on from stuff. But some grudges do last until the grave. I mean, they do. They do. And that's part of life. But basically, I mean, yeah. we're starting things off that what's really interesting is everyone's expecting just oh crap we're so fired like yeah but there's totally there's the nothing mindset. for us because they were at imagineering and uh everything they were at a standstill yeah us st- like i love that footage of like they're just slowly spelling out words with the skeleton who's just standing there mm-hmm. like the, uh, the and there's just no one there there's nothing moving and they had gone from so many people moving in and out and in and out all the time to just and all these crazy projects to nothing to, to nothing 
And then and then Michael Eisner and Wells came in and they're like, look, <sighs> we want to make this great. We want to do everything we can to bring Disney back. Not that Disney necessarily went away because the parks are still profitable at this point. But also recognizing that this is just something so uniquely Disney and it's its own thing. Right. And they're thinking, okay, how do we take what's already working and make it even better? How do we do that? And of course, what do you do? You bring in Star Wars. And this, that's part of it of just anyone who is really into theme parks and stuff they've heard these stories a billion times but i love hearing it every single time is eisner's just so clueless about like the theme parks and he really wanted to modernize it and make like the youths of america like really interested in going to the parks again so because again right by this time already it's nostalgia it's just nostalgia because like there really hasn't been anything new since Epcot. Epcot opened. Yeah. Yeah. And for in terms of like thrilling stuff, really nothing since like Space Mountain. And so that he brings in his son, Breck, who is only like 12 or 13 at the time. Yeah, he's, he's so like, young. I'm going to have my son with me and he's going to like tell me which ones like he likes. He's going to bring so, me into the youths. The legend, Tony Rockster, is just like okay, my presentation now will be altered (laughs) because not necessarily going to drop like ride capacity stats and like, this is great for crowd flow, blah, blah, blah. Right. So he just kind of like scrambles, scrambles. So he's like, start off Star Wars, like experience being inside Star Wars. And And so my favorite thing about, okay, again, I know that I'm going to say this so many times, but that again is one of my rides. Star Tours has always been one of my favorites when i found out that they were revamping it and you could go on different journeys i actually got kind of sad because i was like no i love that like there was this one time my sister and i went and it was extra magic hours and there was this little like couldn't have been more than five-year-old boy and you know it's shaking because it's simulate it's a simulator to make it feel like you're on a spaceship and he's sitting there and he asks his dad, he's like, what does this do? And his dad's like, oh, it just shakes a little bit. So the whole, my sister and I don't even remember the ride because this little boy, he's like shaking his whole body. He's like, oh, like shaking his body more. And it was just the funniest thing ever. And I'm like, this is what I love about this ride is it has so many weird memories. And so I was sad when they changed it, but I just rode it in January and I had a different experience. I had one of the very 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 new one that there's now like rise of skywalker i had a rise of skywalker one and And you're just like so is it canon that basically star tour saves the day right i was like i was like this is so weird and again they loved they they mentioned it in the you know it kind of works right and so like again that's one of those rides if i don't ride it i feel like i didn't have the right experience and it upsets me but they um they mention it in the documentary where they're saying again this was one of those rides where it was like no the queue has to be just as interactive as the ride itself so you see r2d2 and you see c3po and they said i love when they were geeking out that um whatchamacallit george lucas he he grew up like a big disney fan and he loves he loved disneyland and all of that and so that bringing him in he was super involved in the process 
for the attractions that were based off of Lucas properties. And so it's super interesting of just that it's like, yeah, we need to bring all of this in and getting to see like the archival footage of seeing Anthony Daniels, like record C3PO. Dialogue. Right. That's what I was just about to say. I loved when they were geeking out. They're like, Oh my God, it's C3PO. Oh my God. Like all these people. The Imagineers who- are just like, <laughs> so R2D2 is like at my desk and everyone walks in and is like, is that the real thing? Like, I love that. There are these insanely creative, intelligent people who are creating these big, huge things. And they're like, Oh my God. Oh my Oh my god, this is so cool! And it's, it's like Star Wars. I know, I was just dying, and I loved because I couldn't figure it out for like the longest time. And I was talking to my sister about it, and I was like, "How do they make this happen?" And she's like, "Oh no, this is NASA equipment. This is like flight yeah, simulator technology." And yeah. I was like, "I'm sorry, what?" And then they talk about it in the in the documentary, and I'm like, "Oh my god! Oh my god!" Disney went and there. Then, so I recommend as far as if like the Imagineering story has sparked interest in like the history of theme park attractions and that kind of deal. There's a few different YouTube channels that I recommend primarily Defunct Land is just his stuff is so well done. But there was an attraction in Epcot called Body Wars, which is what they actually kind of tested out the like the simulator technology before the main rollout of Star Tours. And with then they knew as far as that one was so intense that they had to scale it back because like literally everyone was getting sick on it and so it's very interesting if they just kind of they do push the limit and see like how far can we take this technology and then oh too much too much shave it back (laughs) a little bit so when they bring it in star Tours, it's kind of the right balance of you do kind of have that like feeling of space flight but you're not like completely turned upside down you know right like gonna be sick right exactly but i like um i like that he thought that eiser and wells thought about it and they're like how do we do something that's inherently disney but also not and that's but that can draw people in and they're like oh star wars yeah, and that was one of the first so rides as soon they as did. Basically, they brought in that that presentation. They're like, "Yes, that." And that's the first thing that they did that had nothing to do with Disney, in the sense that Star Wars it wasn't, wasn't owned Disney by movie. Disney yet. It wasn't, and then not yet. They created oh, and I, so in that same presentation, so Tony Baxter brought up two attractions. So it was Big Thunder and Splash Mountain, and so. <sighs> And with Splash Mountain, that then instead of talking about, like, kind of we're doing a new spin on the flume ride and all of this stuff, and that's going to be cool, and we'll get to reuse these animatronics that we have from America Sings. So instead, since he's talking to, like, a 13-year-old boy, he's like, it's going to be the biggest drop, and, like, you're going to get wet, and it'll be so cool. (laughs) And so he's like, Dad, yeah. And so got the thumbs up from Breck so then got the thumbs up from Eisner I loved watching that like them testing it and they're like nope 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 too much water no 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 not enough water wait wait wait, that's still too much water I loved watching that I loved that one because like a log flume it's pretty much a very standard theme park attraction but so then they did kind of outsource at first but then they're like nope for how we're pushing it to the next level the other guy's stuff doesn't work so we need to like do our own thing and make this our own but i i 
I know a lot of people, that's one of their rides for sure. Like, they have to ride Splash Mountain. And I'm like, and I will say, there is a total difference in Splash Mountain at Disney World and Disneyland. In Disneyland, I feel like I go underwater. And in Disneyland, I'm like, okay, that wasn't so bad. And it's two across. Just like Space Mountain is two across in Disneyland and one only one seat behind the other in Disney World. So there's still differences. Yeah. There's still differences, but... How do you feel about Splash Mountain? Splash Mountain, it's just weather permitting. And if I'm in the right space for it, that it's not like a must do every single visit. But it's fun to do every now and then. Because, like, I am always, I am always the person who gets wet on water rides. You know, when it's like, (laughs) if it's Splash, like a flume situation or if it's a river raft situation where it rotates around and you know it's always the one person in the whole thing that gets soaked it is literally always me so <laughs> that way <laughs> and it's literally been this way from since i was like a little kid to I'm when sorry, i was a grown funny. adult of just always just like whoosh and so it's not I, funny i'm, I'm sorry. self-aware now enough that i don't write it unless i plan on being fully soaked <laughs> gonna carry me through into the next day oh my god but I god I keep saying this but there are just so many and there are so many to choose from but and so like while we're just talking about how so actually let's get into it so we talked about two attractions already but this episode really does besides just the like the executives and stuff really the big imagineering star is Tony Baxter oh the for legend, sure the icon and so it's just so cool of that since he grew up in Southern California and so that he has this big history with the parks that just hung out there all the time. And I loved in the earlier episode that it's just by serendipity that he was there actually the day after Walt died. And yeah. so experienced that kind of somber atmosphere and all of that. So it has this connection to the parks in Walt Disney but then he just knew I had to work there so he started out as an ice cream scooper so it was awesome that they took him back to the I ice cream that. shop and had him scoop a cone and you're just like oh this is so precious I love that that he said I came here to Disney and I thought I have to work here it doesn't matter how it doesn't matter when it doesn't matter in what capacity I'm doing it I'm gonna work here and he created some of the biggest stuff some of the coolest stuff and he so- created Big Thunder Mountain and so, well, Tony Baxter, he wasn't, so the original Big Thunder Mountain in Disneyland, he was just on the team for, but he created it for um, Disneyland Paris, where they really kind of, oh, that's, I, that's the prime version of it. Is the, is the one in Disneyland Paris the one where it's its own island? Exactly. And then you have to go underwater in the queue? Oh, I want to experience that so badly. So bad. Do you ever ride Thunder Mountain at night? Always. I, I like to do it during Phantasmic because then you just kind of catch it like off to the side. Well, at, at Disneyland, you get to do that. At um, Disney World? Oh, my God. I love riding it. You probably Disney- catch during other entertainment fireworks shows and stuff. Oh, but. I do it like when when there used to be a parade. I was like, okay, I've seen this parade. I'm going to go and I'm going to ride Thunder Mountain three times in a row because there's no one here. But they don't do the parade at night anymore in Disney World, which is devastating. Oh my god, that parade. No, Big the... Thunder is always just, it's an icon, and I have so many great memories, and just like... So many great memories. I, I know the safety speech, and all of that, of 
how do folks keep your hands, arms, feet inside Because <laughs> he, this here's the wildest ride, ride in the, the wilderness. wilderness. <laughs> I love it so much. And I love riding it at night because, like, it's been going all day. So, like, it's really, really well oiled up. So you're just, like, flinging yourself to the sides and it's going yeah. so fast. Oh, my God. And there's so many carts going that they're like, no, we got to get these people on and off. So I'm like, oh, I have to ride it at night. It's my favorite. It's mine and my sister's and favorite. So I have, like, family memory. So the one incline where it's, like, you're in the mine tunnel where the boulder, sh- like, shaking and the dynamite oh, yeah. is about to go off. Every time my family would ride it, my dad would shout, she's gonna blow. So <laughs> to this point, now when I go on like solo trips or it's not with the core four family unit, I have to shout that out in, in honor of my dad. And so now I am spreading that. I implore you listeners, let's carry on this tradition of when you're on that incline on Big Thunder, just shout out, she's, she's gonna, gonna blow. <laughs> And, and make Rex Shook proud. Oh, and man. So that it's really is one of those that you can ride again and again. And so that's why I love the quote of that that Baxter says. Of oh, his, my God. That is, that I not, think, the best quote ever. You're not designing it for the first ride. You're designing it for the 20th. And so that you still get something out of it each time that you ride it. And... It is so true of just because that's a fairly tame roller coaster, but it's still a like fun, thrilling experience that like gets your heart rate up. Oh, yeah. You get to just experience that little bit of magic and that each experience is kind of different because recently um, the last few years that I lived in California and then when I visited it since moving to Texas um, at Disneyland. It was kind of fun. You got to get little glimpses of Galaxy's Edge construction. Oh, um, really? When you were at like the higher peaks of Big Thunder. So like you'd be fully immersed, but then just take one second just to like pull out your phone and just like snap pics or just like <laughs> look at what's going on. And so that was always super fun. But that I love of just how he breaks it down that what he kind of approaches in terms of when designing a ride of what those factors are that really kind of make these attractions great of that first off there is something that is just uniquely disney of just the attachment to like whether it's different ip or just those kind of just special magic and emotion and all of that that certain x factor that is just quintessential to any disney attraction but also that it's going to make you feel something and that it does take you to a different place than you get to experience in normal life. So whether it is in a galaxy far, far away or on a mine train in the gold rush era or um, like down a log flume kind of thing that you are kind of transported to a different place, a different time, like that you have that fantastical element and that there is like a little bit of still thrill in it of that right you get that not all the way to fear of death but you just scale it back a little bit past from that but just enough to get your heart rate going and so that kind of makes those great attractions Right, and like you said, you have that memory every time you're at that point in the ride where your dad screams that, and you ride it thinking that's going to happen, and you think it when you ride it alone, and that's the same thing, like you ride these things knowing, hey, this is going to happen, and it's my favorite part. There are so many people who say, oh my god, 
this is my favorite part of the ride. This is my favorite part of the ride. And so you have that experience and you have that emotional tie to it where you're like, I have to ride it. Mm-hmm. I have to ride it because I love it so much and I have so many good memories with it. And I just, I, then that's what he aimed to do and that's what he successfully did. Yeah, and then they kind of used that as a transition of after talking about Big Thunder was really when they did first start talking about Disneyland Paris and how right that was kind of their big project that, that that's gonna be for Eisner and Wells how they really leave a legacy in the Disney parks of their during their time at the company and Paris all of France did nope. not want it they didn't want it not even one iota did they want that. And when they opened and they were, th- or when they made the announcement, when they did the press conference and they were just like, pew, 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 egg, 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 Like they're just throwing trash up there. throwing eggs up That they're doing a presentation at the stock exchange. And you know, the whole concern is just like, oh, Disney's just a greedy American company and that they don't have culture and all of that. And what character do they bring? Scrooge McDuck to stand alongside yeah. Michael. Yeah. <laughs> I'm just like, did, that wasn't... did no one focus group this? or No, there was definitely no test grouping. None. None. There was no one who stepped up and said, hey, um, so, ooh, not your best choice. That they're, because it's just so funny of now everything in Disney is just so focus group and there's a PR spin of everything and optics and all of that everything but in this it was we're Disney we do what we want type this will be fine it's gonna be fine no it's not fine you just got egged sir but they just kind of trudge along through and you know of like so Disneyland's the first it's the crown jewel and then Disney World is like the biggest of course. And like it's big. And like then they've spectacle. already got Tokyo. And so this one, they're like, okay, this is going to be the most beautiful park. Like of just aesthetic. Absolutely the most beautiful. And so the craftsmanship that is involved. Oh my God. My hand is on my chest. I can't. I can't. It, it's on my list as far as things to visit that. Absolutely. I even a family roll my eyes because I kind of want to visit Disneyland Paris more than actual Paris. But, um, yeah, I won't. No, I'll keep my comments to myself. I was not a fan. And so the, it's definitely on my travel list in, sometime in the future. But And we need to talk about the castle, though, the because castle that is was stunning. That, I love that it's just like oh my God. It, on like a hill landscape and that... They're like, wait, this is Europe. There's like so many castles. Like literally, the inspiration for um, was that for sn- drawing for from White. well for Snow White's castle. Snow Sleeping Beauty is Beauties. in located in Germany, so New Schwanstein Castle. But yeah, they're like, okay, this is like all around that they they're used to this stuff. So they're like, okay, so we're gonna make it fantastical, so that way it's still its own thing. So they pull up, um. Irvin Nine's um, concept art for Sleeping Beauty, and they're like, "That's the image that we're going for." And you just see it in the distance, and they're like, "That one in the distance, that is what we want to model it after." And it is, oh and my like god, the box beautiful trees and the topiaries, and you're, oh, 
oh my god I know and the colors and they had and the textiles used and I loved watching those people weave the tapestries because they made sure that those were hand woven tapestries and that with this one it is um unique in in fact of that this I think this was the first one where you could go inside the castle as far as of, yes you can go inside and there's a balcony and there's the balcony but the stained glass that tells the story of Sleeping Beauty and so they took those like the animation frames and gave it to like this artisan that literally came out of retirement just to do this and oh my god his work was so he had only really done church windows yeah. too and they show all of his work from the churches that he'd done and you're like oh my it's god exquisite. this man is incredible but this time you just gotta have fun yeah and they're oh my god beautiful they're stunning like the artistry that went into disneyland paris which was originally called euro disney um which does not fit because i don't know if it's because we know it at disneyland paris or what but just euro disney doesn't sound great so yeah, and um, once again they got backlash from that because see in like american terms like euro is just kind of like a abbreviation for like europe and that kind of situation and their but money that was the deal of like they kind of forgot that like euro is currency so it's once again of just <laughs> greedy americans of once again kind of yeah. propagating that re- reputation and so once again, right focus groups but they thing for a reason. i believe right i fully believe this their vision for it to be the most beautiful got it nailed it crushed it and so like and then what's unique in terms of instead of tomorrowland um, because all of the parks have this issue is when you do Tomorrowland, tomorrow becomes today and then becomes the past of that. It's just constantly outdating and yes! stuff. So what they, I loved that so whole explanation. What they did instead is it's discovery land. And so this is based off of like kind of old timey, like steampunk visions of the future. And so looking at Jules Verne and all of that, and I love that they said, what is that? I don't know what that, it's, I don't know what that ride is called, but that thing right there, the it's kind of like the Orbitron. Yeah, there you go. Where they were like, this looks like a drawing from Da Vinci's notebook. Mm-hmm. And that's what we were going for. And I think, I love that they made it more about timeless innovation. Does that make sense? Yeah, because then it, it doesn't date itself because it. Right. It's like a retro future, basically. And so I've always said that they kind of need to do that for, like, with our U.S. parks. Of I would say almost doing more of, like, a mid-century retro futurism of, like, when they... Because eventually they do need to do a huge revamp of what Tomorrowland is. Right. right. And so I think that's kind of the way to go about it. And But anyway, and like Disneyland Paris it's just it's gorgeous but they reinvented Space Mountain and so it has the story and they kind of created this technology at the catapult launch so you have like the thrills but also just this fantastic theming and that like the narrative behind it and that you have this like gorgeous classical score with it and so sadly that iteration of 
Space Mountain from the Earth to the Moon is no longer at that park, but just encapsulating, it was such a perfect attraction. And so that this is the era of just so many just incredible things were made. Yeah, and I love... I love that catapult system because that's what they use later on for like rock and roller coaster. And then other parks started using it because that's like the Hulk at yeah, the Universal launch, Studios. Yeah. yeah. And oh, sometimes that's oh terrifying, but you're like, yes, I love this. I love it. And so this is kind of the first hiccup in terms of in the Eisner era of their tenure. The design is flawless. Like, the thought and care that went into it is totally there. But they did just kind of go a little bit overboard. And so... But that's what he... And that's what he said in the interview. He's like, maybe we should have reined it back in. But we were so focused on making the next best thing that we were like, okay, well, what, what we're going to get done in this amount of time. misstep in terms of that whole experiment is the parks, they did have to put that money into it to get it to the level where... Oh, that for audience sure. would respect it but like they built like three hotels and they're like huge they're gigantic and that it wasn't fitting for the amount of people that were coming it they're realistic. like okay that yeah it, it wasn't it's not gonna at be all like florida where everyone flocks to it and spends super long vacations there that they're right. gonna be like little day or two trips that kind of thing and so right that's honestly one of the biggest drains of money in that. And then just of that, it is more seasonal in the, those kind of aspects of you do have, like, it's France where compared to Florida or California, you actually have a winter. The weather is different. Yeah. yeah. And those kind of things. Right. And that there still was a lot of just media bias to overcome and, like, get used to. So that's why it did take forever for Disneyland Paris to get in the black and because for the for a very long time it was always just on the brink of like right. going under and so it required like outside investment and that kind of thing to kind of keep it afloat but of what they made the product itself is amazing and i love my favorite thing so far honestly has been all of the archival footage because i loved the videos where they yes, were the like when they were building disneyland paris <laughs> and they're like do you see how's it going not great as you can see because apparently when the sun comes out in paris everyone goes on no vacation <laughs> isn't this view fantastic so wouldn't bad. it be even better if there were construction workers six months ahead of opening oh my god i was dying because i liked when they're walking through and they're like this is where the castle should be and this is where the castle will be we don't know when when it will be but it'll be here (laughs) i love those because they were just so just done they're like they're like this is i can't do this anymore i'm out and because especially at this point like that kind of generation of imagineers like they were young kids when they first started with yeah. like Epcot and stuff, but at this point, they have families, like, that, and they're a bit older of just, like, so, they still totally love what they do, but of just, like, the foreign assignment and being away, if, like, when things aren't going smoothly, just, like, ugh, just being so much more done in that situation, but 
then are so thrilled with how it comes out and that I do love the story of that obviously there still was pushback even upon opening but they did win people over by oh yeah like I loved um who was it who was it they said they're they were living in Paris and their neighbor oh, was like that was Tony I'm gonna Baxter go too, of like okay that's what I thought it was I wasn't sure but he was like my neighbor when I was living in Paris she was like I'm gonna go check out that little park of yours today as if it was like nothing and then he said so how'd you like it she was like it was fine it wasn't bad <laughs> I was like, oh my god. Oh, the French. It was was okay. It was fine. Mm -hmm. It was fine. But as this is all being built, they're over there building Tower of Terror. Well, also just in general Hollywood Studios. Yeah, they're creating all of Hollywood Studios and that's where... they don't necessarily mention it during, um, in the Imagineering story. But part of it too is that... The rumors were leaking that Universal was going to build a big studio tour park in Florida. And so Mike Lesnar's like, well, we're going to make one first. <laughs> and I, I, that was always one of my favorite things was going on the studio tour. I thought it was so much fun. I thought it was great. And I loved it. And then I was sad when it went away. And, um, but I will say that keeping it the Universal, because, Universal in California is literally on the actual Universal mm-hmm. lot. So when you do the studio tour, you can see things being filmed all the time. And also when you're in L.A. and it's extremely hot and you're like, I need to sit for an hour and also not be in the sun. Boom. Studio yeah. tour. So God bless Universal for that. But I was really upset when they got rid of it in Disney World because I always thought it was so much fun. And I loved watching like the car scene and like the when you, they did the show and they showed you like how they did stuff on the water and how they did stuff with cars and I thought that was really great and I love that they were like we need like a half day park yeah right they were thinking and oh, I see a half day park like and I still call it to this day I still call it MGM all the time it was originally MGM because, Studios and so because it was originally MGM Studios in their partnership with MGM and my heart breaks my heart aches. Even though Mickey finally gets his own ride, I miss the great movie ride so much. I loved the great movie ride. I loved it. And they show all these people in the documentary coming off of it, and they're like, that was amazing. I loved it so much. Like, yeah, I loved going thing through it. When they designed it, the, the original vision of Half Day Park kind of went out the window because they were enjoying it. And oh, yeah. Eisner and Wells were just so, like excited about what Imagineering was doing they're just like no keep doing it like this is great keep finding stuff just kept green lighting stuff and then and like that's what, oh that was one of my favorite things that they said about Wells that Wells was very um he wasn't super hands-on he was just kind of like okay he would like, ask explain it to me okay well what are you he's like what are you working on well I'm working on this okay explain it to me okay well here's this okay now You've explained it to me, and I get it. Do it. But how are you going to make it happen? Tell me exactly how you're going to make it happen. And if I buy it, you can have the money for it. Mm-hmm. You can have the money for it. Like, they were just so open to everything. Just and that's what, what I love. And, that, and, and what they really talk about. And that's how Tower of Terror came about. discussing Hollywood Studios and, like, those development is, that's also right about the same time that Frank Wells was like, you know, to really keep this propelling forward that 
we need to start doing like research and development. And so having like an R&D department to really stretch ourselves besides just like the existing ride systems that we have and those kind of things let to we want to create something completely new and so that's when they did oh, get yeah. like the top engineers and scientists and creative people and lighting designers and all of that to come together of we're going to stretch the boundaries of what we've ever done before to a whole nother level oh yeah like when they were showing how first of all i love also the back like the uh behind the scenes videos of them testing, like testing all their technology so, like, they're on the water and they're doing, like, the spinny water thing, whatever they were doing. I was like, they're just literally playing all day and it's amazing. But I loved watching them create Tower of Terror because they were like, how are we going to make this work in the way that we want it to? We don't want to go up and down. We want to go back and forth. And we want to drop really quickly and then propel everyone back up. So, they're sitting there and they're, when they were, like, figuring it out and they had, like, all those points on the floor where the machine had to hit, I was like... This, the amount, and if there was um, a Pixar exhibit here in Chicago um, two years ago, and it showed, like, all of the science behind everything Pixar has to do every time. So, like, I love the amount of, like, math and science that all, not that I love math, but of science that goes into creating these rides because it is a lot of math and science and you think oh I'm on a ride that's really cool okay but you don't think about all the behind the scenes work that went into it and the hours and hours of thinking okay how are we gonna make this happen how do we get this how do we get this elevator to do the thing we needed to do and I like that they kind and of like I worked in tandem with the elevator company and so it's like and the elevator was company was like you wanted to do huh to do what and it's what? basically but ours don't they do that and they're like no 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 we know fall. and we're like yeah but that's what we want it to do <laughs> we want it to we fall want it to and drop like, 13 but no we stories. make it so that they don't fall and they're like no 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 we need it to fall so they had to like really oil up the the elevator company to be like no stop doing exactly what you've been doing and what's been working and do the exact opposite yeah because that's what we need mm-hmm. And I love that story so much. Because the guy who's telling it, he's like, yeah, I don't know. I don't know how they let us do this. But somehow they worked it out. And that, that is another one where the riot system is new and the technology is really cool. But what really steps it up is the theming on it. Like, oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Just like with the Haunted Mansion. Like, but, you, it has to be right. So... I, the first time I rode Tower of Terror, I was five years old. And honestly, nice. Because it was summer after kindergarten. And honestly, the line itself in the pre-show scared me out way more than just the like up and down falling. <laughs> but just like that creepy hotel lobby. Yeah. No. Little Matt. Yes. It's not here freaky. For that. But... Like, that was one of those that I'm glad my parents just made me ride stuff and just, like, do it. You'll like it eventually, but just do it. And so now I, I right. really love everything. But it's such a great attraction. And we'll we'll get to Guardians of the Galaxy Mission Breakout next episode. But, like, I think basically since we have the original still in Florida – sure do other iterations in other places later like but this is still the original and the icon 
Oh, yeah, for and sure. However, <laughs> I know we keep just saying iconic, like, so many times, but it's but the best that's era part of the style. It's that's so part great. of the... So out of that same R&D kind of time frame, they were like, you know how we did the gimbals to, like, change the elevation and with Star Tours? What if we put that on a truck? <laughs> and so... <laughs> then that's really how they started to like get their ball rolling on Indiana Jones. And so that might, I think it's in, it's at least in my top five of theme park attractions of all time that I, I love it. Also, it is exclusively Disneyland only, although Florida has the same. It is the ride system. We have a show. Well, you have the ride system of Indiana Jones, just in dinosaur, but yeah, as far as it works, but we so, have the Indiana Jones show so well with Indiana Jones, and as far as that's another one where they're like, well, we don't have room for it because this is California, and but then they're like, well, we'll figure it out. So they took a fair amount of trees out of Jungle Cruise, but then they also took over like the parking lot, like one of the extra parking lots that they had. And they're like, we'll put the show building here and then just use all of that lush jungle just to kind of cover it. So it's like just the bulky show building is out of you because the scale of like the main room and the attraction, it's huge because it is like a movie set in that sense. And like the big room in the temple with the like the rickety bridge and stuff. But they hide it with all of that. And then you have this intricately themed queue that oh my god it's amazing like so you have all the stuff like where you're in the jungle of just as as soon as you step through like right off of Adventureland it just it takes you in it and as you walk through the temple of just there's so many little details and things and they have like a fun little game to play along with of some like the pictograms for the kids to like decipher and that kind of stuff and that that it had that ambiance there because the line would freak me out a little bit as a kid to the point where me and my sister we would sing God is bigger than the boogeyman from Veggie Tales mm-hmm. to like make us feel brave and because it kind of just has this like eeriness about it but that's where you know it's the biggest compliment of there's people that tell the imagineers and stuff oh yeah i'll sometimes let people pass me when i'm going through the queue just to spend more time just enjoying the ambiance of it on the way to the actual attraction but the attraction itself is just it's so good that how they figure like they really do kind of get that like the jeep motion and that the turns and everything but you still have like that story break and how they're able to kind of figure out the like the boulder sequence because they're like we knew we had to have that of like all the things from the movie and but they're like but how you you can't have a ride vehicle go backwards because that's not safe because then you could inadvertently have a collision or something but with that they're like you just kind of play with the force perspective because tony baxter was in a car wash and he saw like the thing you know the rolly thing that with the like blades that go over your car to like clean the top oh yeah so he saw that coming towards the car so then it felt like the car was moving back as that was going over it but he's like okay so you just kind of play with just how your eye lines and stuff work of just those like sleight of hand illusion basically magic (laughs) 
stuff to like trick your like trick your mind that there's actually a boulder coming towards you and oh I love it and just pair that with the John Williams score and it's perfect true facts because it is like a like it is its own composition unto itself that John Williams did for for the attraction so it obviously has just the Raiders theme mainly in it but that John Williams did make that that piece of music with it and so I'll admit I have the like the soundtrack of Disney parks of some of like the attraction background music and that is one where I'll, I'll play the Indiana Jones and the Temple of the Forbidden Eye theme while I'm driving just to like if I'm making a turn or something but I'll have to like check myself where I'll realize oh wait I am speeding way too much because I'm just so pumped by this music because it takes me back to the attraction I love that though and it's just great and all-time fave and so that's where like taking that ride system to dinosaur that the way they were able to retheme that they don't really touch on this in Imagineering story but it's still that like they were able to create something still great out of it where that's where sometimes they do kind of through like the R&D and everything they figure out something they've never done before and it's just like you have to keep ahead of the game and stuff because at this point there is like Universal Studios and the other parks that are slowly developing to like try to keep up with Imagineering and so they're like well we have to keep pushing ourselves and so once you kind of crack it you're like okay now we can use this in different storytelling ways to tell different stuff in different parks but like that way we just we keep developing so we can keep creating new ride systems and so that way it's just you have this evolution of just things that are truly great oh yeah and so that's where that you kind of just see of it was just kind of this perfect storm of you had these great minds that were coming up with the attractions but you had this corporate support of Eisner and Wells that really was making it happen but there really was a great balance between the two of I love the thing that Tony Baxter says about Michael Eisner of just that he was just such an idea guy that he just said so many ideas of some of them were amazing not all of them were great some were amazing (laughs) and some were fine and then some were ugly of just like terrible (laughs) I loved that and you needed Frank Wells to be like not that one that's bad (laughs) don't do that that. we're not doing that not no money is going to but we'll, but we'll do this. That's good. But this one, work on this. And so they just like kind of balance themselves out in them of like some of the older Imagineers said of like it was very reminiscent of Walt and Roy of how they kind of balance themselves of that you have this great creative mind that is this kind of larger than life charismatic personality and then you do have the more down-to-earth guy that's like well we have to have money to like pay for this and yeah so it does actually need to be like a good idea if I'm gonna put my like if I have to do all this work to like get the find the money for this and so that they just say balance them out so well in that like it's interesting that he was like this calming presence but he like Frank Wells is just such an interesting figure of that then he was also kind of a daredevil of that he liked to like climb mountains and like go in a hot air balloon or do all this kind of like epic stuff 
Which ultimately, but, like, I, I love the picture where they showed him climbing had, the Matterhorn, which is just so cool. And and I love that um, he, didn't they say he climbed, like, the six highest yeah. peaks? And But he didn't do Mount Everest. He did all yeah. the other ones. And that basically, as we were kind of saying earlier in the episode, because of, like, TV specials like The Wonderful World of Disney and all of that, Eisner was kind of like the front face for everything, but they were well. He was so everywhere, and like, and so between this oh, yeah. episode of the Imagineering story, and also I highly recommend um, the documentary Waking Sleeping Beauty. Oh my god, Waking Sleeping Beauty is one of the best the documentaries era, on the animation side of things. Because there was there's so many literally and all of that. You needed a guy like Frank to be able to calm the egos and just make the great things happen because eisner even says in the imagineering story he's like we wanted to not only resurrect the parks we wanted to make sure the movie side of it was going well too so we knew we needed to also essentially resuscitate the animation and so in waking sleeping beauty they show you how with the little mermaid they brought in thus the disney renaissance iconic and all of that the, the, the yeah the Disney Renaissance and the Disney animation that most of us grew up mm-hmm. with you know Little Mermaid the Lion King um, Beauty and the Beast like all of those movies that we all were obsessed with when we were little Aladdin that speaking all came of out of wa- the Eisner and Wells area of waking Sleeping Beauty I think it is hilarious so that in the Imagineering story they just completely gloss over Jeffrey Katzenberg just like nope he's not included no nope. none for none you for you 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 left us and created dreamworks and we're super spiteful and petty so we will never mention you ever again <laughs> he is excommunicated <laughs> goodbye bye-bye <laughs> and so that just gets washed away in the sands of time but i'm glad there are pieces like both both the imagineering story and waking sleeping beauty to just really illustrate how vital Frank Wells was to this period. Oh, absolutely. And like that, then we get to as far as that he did sadly pass away as far as in a helicopter crash. Um, and no, 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 it wasn't just a helicopter crash. He was first in a skiing accident. And then they went to take him. They went and rescued them. In the helicopter, and then the helicopter mm-hmm. crashed. It was a hole to do. And that, it just, it brought everything to a standstill. And so they they sh- talk, showed a few different Imagineers that were just like, I got the call and just like, you have to turn on the TV. You have to turn on the TV. It's about Frank. And just saw like kind of that, like, you know, the like glossy headshot that, you know, you kind of get on the news of someone's death. And they're just like, I immediately knew something wasn't good. And that his passing was deeply felt throughout Imagineering, throughout the entire company, and Michael Eisner in particular, of just that lost his partner in all of this. And the footage... Oh, that... The footage from the, the memorial oh. service. I, I oh. was weeping. Oh, it was too it was emotional brutal. for me. I, oh. And it's just... That oh, it was rough. That changed things. That you kind of get a different era after this that this really was a huge turning point in 
not just Imagineering history, but the entire company overall. But there was just a between just dealing with Frank's death and then shortly thereafter, Michael Eisner has a heart, like a heart attack that requires a quadruple bypass. Quadruple bypass. Yeah. Huge deal. And so between that, they this charismatic of just the happy idea guy he just kind of withdraws and is like just not involved in the parks anymore so you've had these years of just so much success and so much create a lot of years too through that almost a decade and that of just so so much progress and things that move forward and it's just it turns on a dime instantly and it's just like yeah we're not doing this because at this point too there's still a lot of financial issues with paris and it was right at the same time that they had bought like abc the television network so they had spent a lot of money on buying that where so it's a just, lot like it was in the billions was it like seven billion or something, something like that absurd. but yeah something ridiculous basically all of this just kind of screeches everything to a halt and like we said every episode has a cliffhanger but this was kind of one of the most impactful of just like where the higher ups are oh, saying, "Oh, I agree. Yeah, we're not doing castle parks. We're not doing theme parks. Of just like what you knew is done." And so the Imagineers are once again like, "What is going on?" And there's a hard few years that are ahead of it. That there's other progress that's made, but then you, it, it's bumpy. That's where like the future episodes, like the next one's hit or miss. But um, as this episode is probably at this point. Yeah, we're looking over two hours at these steel, but there's so much to talk about, and it's so great. And oh yeah, if y'all have gotten eleven episodes into this podcast, y'all are down for some some <laughs> theme park discussions. So oh, there for sure. will be in a few more days um, a second episode where we will talk about episodes four through six of the Imagineering story. So there's there's some highs and some lows, and then all of the like super cool new stuff that has happened recently um we will get into that um we'll probably also hit on the fact that well literally just hours before we recorded this tonight um it is official now that all disney theme parks are closed because of the coronavirus and that's huge in terms of theme park history and what that means for disney and and Tokyo had already been closed. Yes. So as far as it's it's across the board. But we will get into that of what that means theme park wise since we are discussing Imagineering story. And then also how some of the studio delays and things on um, the films are going to affect like streaming and all of that. We'll, we'll touch base um, next episode on that as well because it's historic it's a huge deal but thank you so much for listening for past couple hours of us fangirling about the amazingness that is imagineering and how much we love these parks and so please 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 um give us a shout out as as far as follow us on instagram that's at once upon a stream and tell your friends about this podcast that we really enjoy doing it and are happy to be a we really do the disney community and so um share this out um we're hoping to kind of spread a little magic and so once again at once upon a stream on instagram as well as twitter and then likewise on instagram i'm at maddie shook 
And I'm at Miss Megan Man. And so that way, would love to see you there. Give us a follow and stay tuned for next episode. Bye. Bye. Bye.